Join me in 1 Peter chapter 1. So we consider the wonder of our salvation. Verses 10 through 12, a short paragraph. Following that opening introduction of Peter about a living hope, we are born again, he says. We have a heavenly inheritance. We are kept through faith. We have received salvation. Naturally, that kind of introductory language should lead us to action. And we'll get there, Lord willing, next week when we look at verse 13 that begins with, therefore. Because of all of this that we have in Christ, in our salvation, here's how we should live. But for now, Peter just can't continue without this brief aside about our salvation. These verses have been called a sanctified footnote. Sanctified because if we say it's a footnote, it makes it sound like it wasn't important enough to be in the text and was put down at the bottom. And that's not what we're saying. We're saying it's so important that he he interrupts the train of thought to show us, listen, are, are you thinking with me, Peter says. Are you thinking with me? I'm talking about salvation. And so he even begins, verse 10, the paragraph with those words, concerning this salvation. He had just mentioned it, the salvation of your souls at the end of verse 9. And concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Some of you may remember the old song. I can only remember the last phrase, um, Angels never knew the joy that our salvation brings. That's where this comes from, this idea of angels peering into salvation that was preached to you by the Holy Spirit that was sent from heaven, which the prophets of old talked about, and they knew they were talking to you, not just to themselves. And all of this is rooted in this grace that they were talking about when they predicted salvation through the coming Messiah. Peter wants us to take a moment to wonder at our great salvation. So we want to do what these verses intended for us to do. That's our big idea for today. We must rekindle the wonder of our salvation. Now that's borrowed language from the psalmist when David cries out, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Remind me when I get into the ruts and routines of life. Remind me when I fall again in sin and confess and repent. Remind me again of the joy that is mine, knowing that heaven is secure because I'm trusting in the righteousness of Christ to be counted righteous enough to enter heaven. Christ is my hope. Bring back the wonder and the joy of my salvation. 
Peter makes five observations about our salvation that should spark wonder. Maybe some of them will resonate with you more than others, but they're all here for us to see in this little aside. Peter's announced our salvation, our inheritance, and he's going to tell us how to live if we're truly saved. But in between, he says, just take a moment and, and wonder that, that you're saved from your sin, that you've been rescued. First observation, that should spark wonder. Our salvation is a story throughout the whole Bible. When Peter writes concerning this salvation, he starts in the Old Testament and tells us they talked about this. They pictured this. They described this. They, they lived out imagery about this. And yes, one day the Holy Spirit was sent from heaven at Pentecost and it was clearly preached, all the details. But from Old to New Testaments, from Genesis to Revelation, there's this story of God getting glory for his name in the salvation of his people. Salvation isn't a fresh concept created in the New Testament. Like there's Old Testament law and all that stuff, and then, oh, now there's Jesus and grace and salvation. No, there's always been one plan, God's provision of salvation by his grace. And for a while, it was a mystery until it was revealed clearly to us. And the word took on flesh and actually dwelt among us so that we could behold the glory of God in rescuing us. The story of salvation is all through the Bible because ultimately it's the story of our rescuer, Jesus. This is a book about Jesus and he is our savior. And we see this all through the scriptures. It's the story of the promised seed of the woman that would crush the serpent's head. That's a story about our salvation that Peter wants us to wonder about. So if you want to wonder where your testimony begins the next time you're asked to share about how God brought you to faith, say, well, it began a long, long time ago in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned and God was unfolding what the curse of sin would look like, but tucked away in there was this promise that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head in a conflict. That's where my salvation began. So when I was saved somewhere in the mid-70s there as a youngster, that story had a beginning, and it's the same story that you've read in your Bible, and it began with the seed of the woman that would crush the serpent's head. The story of salvation is there as Noah builds an ark, the ark of safety that would carry God's people through the waters of his judgment. It's there in the promise of a son through Abraham, a son that would bless all nations of the earth. That's a big promise that needs to be delivered. How is that going to happen? It's the story of our salvation. It's there in the rescuer Moses who comes out of the wilderness maybe with the sun setting behind him so that we see his silhouette as he marches into Egypt and announces God's word to Pharaoh, let my people go. 
That rescuer was telling us the story of our salvation. It's the story of that Passover night with its substitutionary spotless lamb slain and its blood covering that household in their faith that that was God's plan to deliver them and the Spirit of God passed over that house and went to the next one waiting to implement God's judgment, death for sin. That's the story of our salvation. Our salvation is told in the story of a shepherd boy destined to be king. So a shepherd king who would defeat Israel's greatest enemy. In that case, it was in the form of this massive giant Goliath. But that's the story of our salvation, of our rescue by a shepherd king. It's the story of the prophet Hosea pursuing his adulterous wife again and again, redeeming her, buying her back from the slave market, making her his own, purifying her. That's the story of our salvation. It's there as Zerubbabel leads the first exiles out of Babylonian captivity all the way back home. That's our story. That's our salvation unfolding hundreds and hundreds of years ago. It's there as Jesus heals the blind man, as he gives the lame man who was lowered through the roof both forgiveness of sins and legs to walk. And in that picture of of rising up and walking, or in that picture of blind eyes seeing, we're seeing the story of our salvation as our blindness gives way to the sight of faith in Jesus as once impotent and limp legs become empowered to walk and they have life given to them. That's the story of our salvation. In every one of those healings, Jesus was saying, I'm not here to just heal physical needs. I'm here to save your soul. But because I can fix this brokenness, you should know that I can fix the greater brokenness. The story of the Bible is the story of rescue, of salvation in Jesus Christ. And as a believer, you are part of the great rescue story of the Bible. You are right here in this paragraph, verses 10 through 12, when those prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, New Testament church. When Captain Chelsea Sullenberger Landed flight 1549 on the Hudson River. It created a rescue story that 155 souls will tell for the rest of their lives. So it is with our salvation. And I am quite sure that we would be quicker to tell our story of standing on the wing of a plane in the Hudson River more quickly than we tell the story of an inheritance that we have in heaven because Jesus rescued us. Peter rightly says, let's let's take a break here and just step back and wonder at our salvation. You can't open the Bible and read it without thinking that this is steering us towards the rescuer Jesus, the wonder of our salvation. 
Second, be moved to wonder when you realize that our salvation is a study by the prophets. The prophets, it says, searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating. They wanted to know the fullness of the things that they were saying. Now, we know this from the following verse. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. The the greatest good of their message wasn't just for the people they were speaking to, but ultimately for the time when the full mystery would be revealed. In a sense, there was... There was a healthy frustration with living in the Old Testament, knowing that they were going through the rituals of of animal sacrifices to atone for sin. But that wasn't the end. It, It wasn't the real solution. They were doing what God wanted them to do, make no mistake. And God's grace was in that, that their sin could be atoned for the time. But every animal slain was pointing us toward that moment when the precious blood of Christ would cleanse us from all sin, as we heard earlier in 1 John. So they searched and inquired carefully. They longed to know more of the details. Now, make no mistake, they knew about grace. Verse 10, they prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. So so don't be confused. Don't think New Testament saints are saved by grace and somehow Old Testament saints by keeping the law or something. No, they, they understood it was by grace that God has a people for his name. But they didn't specifically know the one, according to John 1, who would be the fullness of grace and truth. They had truth, but it was in fragments and it was partial, and it was cloudy at times. So you could read the whole Old Testament and all the prophets, and we can't do this. We can't separate in our minds what we know of Jesus in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, we would close the book of Malachi, that post-exile prophet and his predictions for what was coming yet, and we would think, ah, that's not a good way to end. There's got to be something more. We can't just perpetually be stuck with pictures and types. We need something with substance. We need the real deal. And that's what unfolds. The mystery, the New Testament calls it, of what was known in the old has now become clear in the person of Jesus Christ. So the Old Testament prophets knew about grace. They just didn't know the name, and the face. They, unlike the apostles, didn't get to touch and handle God in the flesh. They didn't get to see the gospel unfold right in front of them. Verse 11 says, They inquired about what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. They didn't know the who and the when. They were fascinated by the thought of the pictures and the predictions They they certainly knew that the redemption from Egypt with a slain lamb and blood on the doors and a rescuer, Moses, 
sent by God to deliver his people. They knew all of that meant something for a greater redemption, but they didn't know the details. They didn't know what it would look like. They wondered how their shadowy words would become substantial reality. Yet in faith, they delivered their message. We say things like, wouldn't it be amazing to see the miracles that Moses saw in the 10 plagues or the parting of the sea? Wouldn't it be amazing to do the things that Elijah did? Peter says, guess what? That's what the prophets were saying about your time, about knowing what you know, about knowing that Jesus is God's son in the flesh, our savior and Lord, about knowing exactly what salvation is, how sinners can be made right with a holy God. See, the prophets knew they were talking about something in, in a latter generation, They prophesied about a grace that was to be yours, Peter writing to the church. They were saying things like, wouldn't it be amazing to live a thousand years from now or two thousand years from now or whenever God does what he's going to do and to know it all clearly? Wouldn't that be amazing? To know exactly how the mercy of God would unfold for sinners. It should be a wonder to us, Peter says, that the greatest saints that you know in the Old Testament envied you for what you would know so clearly. So we cannot, we cannot think lightly of our salvation. We cannot wake up on Sundays and and think the routine of church. We have to think every Sunday, the dawn of Resurrection morning, Christ is risen. Does that make a difference in my life? Prophets of old would love to sit in your shoes. They would give up calling down fire from heaven. They would give up dropping a rod and watching it turn into a snake. They would give up all their healings of making axe heads float and bringing little kids back from the dead like they did. They'd give up any of that to be able to just treasure a person of Jesus as Savior and to know, look at the fullness of mercy. Look how, look how an old rugged cross could be a picture of judgment and yet mercy, what appears to be tragic defeat at the hands of the Romans and yet its ultimate victory in the providence of God. They would love to see all that. And they had to just wait in faith for what God was going to do. We don't wait for any knowledge. Oh, we wait for the return of Christ and want to dispute, is it premillennial, postmillennial, or amillennial? So I guess we have a few questions, but not really the same. We have this New Testament that unfolds the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We cannot neglect the wonder of our salvation. Third, a third observation to spark wonder, to rekindle the joy of our salvation. Our salvation is a drama of suffering and glory. Now, I use drama here in the best of ways. 
Because at times we say things like, oh, I don't need all the drama, right? Or, oh, can we please talk about this without all the drama? As if, you know, drama were a bad thing. Well, drama is just all the highs and lows. And when you put that into a story, as we're thinking of in our first point, we realize drama is essential. Drama, drama stirs up something in us to, to follow the story, if you were just reading. And in our case, to follow the story writer, because the drama is real. Our salvation is this drama of suffering and glory. Verse 11 says these prophets were inquiring about what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted, that's the Spirit of Christ, when he, through the prophets, predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So there's drama. Somehow this story isn't going to be all happy. There's going to be tension and conflict, which in story writing leads us to the climax The story builds and the tension and how is this going to work? And then suddenly we're in this huge dilemma, the crisis, the conflict. And yet the prophets predicted not only something of that suffering, that conflict, but also subsequent glory. They knew that the story ended well. They just didn't know how it was going to get there. Suddenly that makes sense for Peter writing to us as pilgrims who know the story ends well, but even in our short lifetime, we're not sure how to get there. We're not sure what this is going to look like. But our theme is we're going to follow Jesus Christ in the face of hostility, steadied by grace. We know the story ends well. Subsequent glory, we don't know when exactly, And we don't know how it's all going to look between now and then, but we know there's grace. This is the drama of the story. Suffering and glory. Who doesn't love a good drama? You've watched a movie and thought, they owe me an hour and a half. Like, that was horrible. I thought that was going to end better. It started good. You've watched football games where second halves went by and you thought, they owe me an hour and a whole lot of other things for what they just did. We love drama, whether it's the whodunit murder mystery, whether it's the great comeback with 16 seconds left, or whether it's the unexpected romance that ends up working out. Drama appeals to us. So read the story of salvation in this progression of sufferings and glory and see it in all of its drama. Our story of salvation unfolds great suffering. We're rescued from suffering, by suffering, and for our pilgrim lives, to suffering. So we can't get away from the suffering. But the highlight there is what Peter will say later in his letter, that Christ suffered for us, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. So our salvation is rooted in the drama of suffering. You could read Isaiah 53. It's not unfamiliar to you, but it unfolds what the prophet calls the suffering servant, the one Jehovah would send the Messiah. And yet 
his rule would be established not by force, but by his suffering, he would somehow earn glory. First Peter 2, by his wounds you have been healed, quoting Isaiah 53. But our story isn't only about suffering. Out of that suffering emerges the theme of glory. When you read Isaiah 53, we read through his suffering. We read how the father was pleased to crush him. How the father turns away from that sight of his judgment poured out on Christ, but then how that suffering servant is exalted to glory. And Peter's message is, if we follow Christ in his suffering, we too will follow him in his glory. We know where we're headed to our heavenly inheritance. It's kept there for us. And we are kept by God for that inheritance. So we know we taste glory in the end. That's where we will be. Salvation is the story of suffering and glory. Did you hear in Luke 24 what Jesus said to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus? We're stewing about the, the bits and pieces of knowledge they have. They thought they understood this. They thought he was a prophet, thought he was going to establish a kingdom. Now he's dead, but maybe he's risen. The tomb was empty. We don't know. And Jesus' words to them are, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. What is all that the prophets have spoken? Here's how Jesus summarized it. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter his glory? That's what he told them the prophets said. And in case they didn't believe him, I suppose, the text says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Like we rehearsed all those stories that told the story of our rescuer, Jesus. So Jesus walked with those two disciples and told them all those Old Testament stories that were really summed up as the drama of suffering and glory. It's the story of our salvation. This beautiful story with all of the drama, suffering and seeming defeat, then glory and ultimate victory. That drama of the moment was captured by the songwriter when he wrote, there's a line that's been drawn through the ages. On that line stands an old rugged cross. On that cross, a battle is raging for the gain of man's soul or its loss. On one side, march the forces of evil, all the demons and devils of hell. On the other, the angels of glory. And they meet on Golgotha's hill. The earth shakes with the force of the conflict. And the sun refuses to shine. For there hangs God's son in the balance and then, through the darkness, he cries, It is finished. And we hit the climax of suffering, and the doors swing open to glory. The battle is over. 
It is finished. There'll be no more war. It is finished. The end of the conflict. It is finished. Jesus is Lord. What a story. What drama. What wonder that God, in that moment, remedied our sin. Peter says, stop. Stop and wonder at so great a salvation. Number four. Our salvation is a revelation from the Holy Spirit. Peter does not neglect the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in unfolding this story of salvation. He says it was the Spirit of Christ in the Old Testament prophets. Look at verse 11. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The Spirit of Christ was predicting the suffering of Christ. The pre-existent Messiah, eternal, one with the Father from eternity past, knowing that he would suffer and be glorified, and knowing that in that suffering he would be seeking the lost sheep. The numbers are 99 in the fold and one lost. They never change. They simply represent the masses of those saved and those still being reached. So somewhere along the way, Jesus' numbering of 99 in the fold and one lost represented you. And Peter is saying, Christ, way back in the Old Testament, was saying, I'll find that one. I'll find you. I'll save not one will be lost. The Spirit of Christ was in them. Don't be confused. Though there is a difference between how the Holy Spirit indwells the New Testament believer, don't think the Spirit was absent in the Old Testament. The language there is He came upon them at times, and here we see that He was in the prophets delivering God's message of salvation the Spirit of Christ in the Old Testament, and then we see that Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Verse 12. It was revealed to these prophets that they were preaching a message that would ultimately be best realized by the New Testament church with all the details that they would have of Jesus Christ. But it says this, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. This may be first an indication to Pentecost, the Holy Spirit sent from heaven and the gospel of Jesus Christ was preached with clarity for what we could say the first time. The whole picture now is complete. The righteous Christ, whose life of righteousness would be imputed to our account. The dying Christ, substitutionary sacrifice so that our sins could be atoned for. The resurrected Christ, confirmation that everything he said and did is true and in power he's raised from the dead and he ascends to the throne, sits at the right hand of the Father to begin his rule of absolute authority unthwarted by any man, nation, kingdom on earth. Now that the story is complete, 
He pours out his spirit as Joel prophesied and the message is preached with all the details of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. However, I don't think Peter's intending to say that the Holy Spirit stopped there. Though, yes, the apostles preached the good news by the Holy Spirit that was sent from heaven, I think it's right for us to conclude since all believers have the Spirit and since all believers are called to share the good news that this text continually applies as Spirit-filled believers announce good news. Because actually that's the word preached there. Euangelizo. Euangelion, you being good, angel being message, the good message, the good news. It's just the word for gospeling, sharing the gospel, share the good news. There's joy in your salvation, share with somebody. And suddenly you've just found your place in 1 Peter 1.12. Those who announced good news, and they are announcing it because the Holy Spirit sent from heaven is in them. Somebody filled with the Holy Spirit announced the good news to you one day. Maybe it was a Sunday school teacher. Maybe it was a parent, pastor of a church, a friend, a co-worker. Maybe it was a conglomerate of all kinds of those people. And you finally came to that point where the Spirit showed you, you need Jesus and you confessed your sin and believed. Peter says, that's the wonder of our salvation. That the Holy Spirit was at work in the Old Testament making this known that, and that he's still at work in the New Testament through spirit-filled believers simply sharing the good news. You should wonder at your salvation because the Holy Spirit of God for thousands of years has been revealing the good news of God's salvation and he did it to you. He revealed it to you. One person of the Trinity committed to this active ministry of convicting men of sin, righteousness, and of judgment, revealing salvation. If God gives it that kind of attention by his Holy Spirit, then certainly those of us who have tasted grace should marvel at our salvation. That the Holy Spirit of God was sent from heaven to me to my individual heart and soul. The Spirit put his hands on that and brought it life and showed it the truth. That's why we should wonder at our salvation. It's that personal. Finally, wonder that our salvation is a mystery to the angels. It says, these are things into which angels long to look. Long. It's the word for lust. Now, we have a connotation of lust that's more negative. We usually think of it as desiring the wrong things. But you could lust for Thanksgiving dinner in the sense of a strong desire. That's what it means. You can't wait. Hey, when are we going to eat? When are we going to eat? Who's bringing the mashed potatoes? You, you long for it with a strong desire. You promise your family a vacation, and that morning when you're supposed to wake up early... It's amazing how the kids can't wake up early for anything else with responsibility, right, the rest of the year. And then they're up for a vacation or Christmas morning. They're wide awake. 
Why? Because they can't wait. There's a strong desire. That's the word here. Things into which angels long, they desire to look. And this word look isn't the word for see. It's a, it's a word to closely examine because the root of the word is to stoop or to bend over to get a closer look. Fascinatingly, it's used three times in the resurrection account. John's the first one. He runs faster than Peter, stands outside the tomb, and it says he stooped and looked. That's our word. Peter catches up to him, doesn't have the reservations that John does. We know Peter barges right into the tomb, and it says he stooped and looked. And then shortly after that, Mary comes in quiet solitude into the garden, sees the tomb empty, stoops and looks. Get a little closer to really see it. The angels with this strong desire to better understand it are examining it. Picture a lab-coated scientist, you know, bending over and looking into that microscope, trying to get the closer look, studying. They just can't grasp the fullness of the wonder. Now, we know from Jesus in the Gospels that angels rejoice in heaven at every sinner that repents. They know something of how this is working. They, they, they see sinful man and they see some of them rescued by their commander-in-chief. And they rejoice at that. They, they, they understand something of salvation, but they keep trying to grasp what it must feel like to be saved. Having not encountered saving grace in the way that fallen sinners have, they are left for eternity to marvel at the mystery of salvation. So if the angels of heaven, who fully realize God's holiness better than you and I, are wondering how a sinner like you or a sinner like me could be welcomed into heaven, then perhaps we should do a bit more wondering ourselves. Realize the answer is amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. It's the wondering of worship, the wondering of thanksgiving, the wondering of praise that I'm not convinced even heaven will help with. I think we'll always marvel at the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world for all who believe. The songwriter said, Oh, the wonder of it all. The wonder of it all just to think that what? That God loves me. Peter says, We'll talk about holiness that should flow from a life of salvation, but first... You've got to stop and just wonder that God loves you. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. By it, would you lead us to wonder and to worship? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.